Ruth chapter 2. I want to preach tonight on this subject, a heart for grace. A heart for the grace of God. After I hear the pages quit rustling, we'll have a word of prayer and begin. Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to have an open Bible in our laps. We think of brethren in other parts of the world where to do the very thing that we're doing this evening could endanger them of prison time and even worse. And yet with full liberty, we can gather tonight, all of us can carry in a full Bible that's been available for generations in our country. And we can open it up and we have the Spirit of God indwelling us who's the divine teacher, who guides us into truth and brings things to our remembrance Through the Word of God and the Spirit of God, we have the privilege of seeing Christ lifted up, being reminded that His name is wonderful, that He's the mighty King and master of everything. And though kings and kingdoms will pass away, there's just something amazing about the name of Jesus. So, Lord, as we think about Boaz, the kinsman redeemer tonight, and Ruth, and the picture that they are in the Old Testament of the Gentile bride in Ruth and the Jewish groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, pictured so nobly by Boaz. And we think about the great theme of this book, this brief narrative that pictures so beautifully in the Old Testament the grace of God. I pray tonight that we would determine as we look at some examples and a pattern in Ruth's life, uh, Ruth, this Gentile bride that's a picture of the Gentile church and what a tremendous application for us. I pray, God, in these next few moments together that you would give us a desire, a renewed desire to cultivate in our hearts, to cultivate a heart of grace, a heart for grace. Uh, so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned this morning uh, working on a farm uh, from the time I was 15 to 19. And as I look back on my life, I count that one of the greatest life privileges that I ever had. Uh, The farmer that I worked for, he's now um, with the Lord. His name was Hugh Hegerman. God used him in my life and uh, my brother's lives as well. And we learned many important life lessons uh, from him. He farmed 1,200 acres. Uh, You know, when I talk to farmers out here about 1,200 acres, they're like, that's a lot of ground. But he actually was in our county and in our area, in our region of Missouri, one of the smaller farmers. My dad pastors a couple of farmers that uh, in in cooperation with uh, father and brothers have at different times farmed anywhere from 15 to 20,000 acres as a family. 
Uh, just to give you an idea, this, our church property here is 14 acres. So it's, it's hard to even fathom 15 to 20,000 acres. But uh, 1,200 acres, and we learned so many lessons. I mentioned, like I said this morning, burying that field cultivator. Uh, but one thing I noticed, I was thinking about this in preparation for this evening, I noticed that there were certain times that we would, every spring with a field, we would go in with the field cultivator, cultivate it, then we would come in uh, with a, 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 a smaller cultivator that had baskets on the back end, wire baskets that would just churn and feather that soil, and then we would come in and plant it. But after several years, the, the quality and the growth height of the crops would begin to diminish and so what we would do is we would go in with what was called a chisel plow. It was a, uh, not as wide as that field cultivator. It was maybe 10 or 12 feet wide, a third the width, but the shanks and the shovels on it would literally penetrate a foot and a half to, in some cases, two feet deep into the soil. Break up the plow pan. And then these massive chunks of earth would come up because as you had gone over that field for several years, about a foot down, there was a hard layer that had developed. And by the way, this will help us understand better what the prophet means when he prays, Lord, break up the fallow ground. And so over several years, that about a foot down, that, that harder layer would develop. And so we would take that chisel plow those massive shanks and narrow shovels that would knife deep into the soil and we would churn up massive, big, hard chunks of soil. Then we would go in on top of that with a disc, break up those big chunks with a normal disc, and then we would come back in with the field cultivator and then with the preparation, the basket cultivator. I'm having a hard time remembering what the exact name of the implement was. But uh, four stages. And it was amazing. It was amazing the effect that that would have on the growth of the next planting. So over the years, you would see a diminishing over several years, and then we would go in, and through those four stages, you would break up that fallow ground and cultivate that ground, and it had a dramatic effect on the quality of the crop and the fruit that was produced. I want us to understand this evening, folks, that cultivating a heart for the grace of God takes effort, but it is worth every bit of it. To live in the grace of God, to appreciate the grace of God, to be focused on the grace of God, to be filled with the grace of God, to be finding the grace of God activated in your life, in your heart. It takes effort, but it is worth it. Luke chapter 6 and verse number 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth what kind of fruit? Good fruit. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Proverbs 4, 23. Solomon uh, gave counsel. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Everything that you are flows out of your heart. I thought about this the other day when we were getting the anatomy ultrasound 21, 22 weeks along. And it, we, they, they were an hour getting the ultrasound of the little baby girl that Grace is carrying, our little daughter. An hour. And they probably spent 15 to 20 minutes of that hour looking at the heart. 
making sure that all the chambers were there. The valves were working like... It just blew me away how long that, uh, that ultrasound tech spent trying to get every angle of that heart she could because if the heart is not right physically, it's going to have long-term ramifications. Keep thy heart with all diligence, Solomon said. The, the literal idea is this. Above all the other things that you keep, if you only keep one thing, keep your heart. Above everything else that you keep, keep your heart. Why? For out of it flows everything else that you are. You've heard me say this before. The mouth is the pressure release valve of the heart. That's why when I hear somebody say, well, you don't know my heart. And I normally don't get into... You'll hear somebody, well, people just don't know my heart. Like, well, all somebody's got to do is listen to a person talk pretty quick. You're going to get an idea of their heart. The mouth, the pressure release valve of the heart. I heard this said years ago. Our attitude is the aroma of our heart. I want you to notice Ruth chapter 2 and verse number 13. Then she said, this is Ruth replying to Boaz's commendation, his words of affirmation that he had just given to her in verses 11 and 12. Then she said, let me find favor. This is another word synonymous for grace. Let me find grace or favor in thy sight, my Lord, For that thou hast comforted me, he had relieved tension in her life. And for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. She's acknowledging she's a Moabite. She's acknowledging she hasn't grown up in Israel. She's a foreigner. But she thanks him for speaking friendly unto thine handmaid. The literal idea is this. You've spoken to my heart. Matter of fact, that's the word in the Hebrew language, you've spoken to my heart. What a profound impact. So, I want us to get this. Ruth brings up her heart in her conversation with Boaz. And as we think about cultivating or developing a heart for the grace of God, we can understand that based on, in this chapter, based on Ruth's words, her attitude, and her actions, that she had and cultivated a heart of grace, a heart focused on the grace of God, a heart that desired to be filled with the grace of God and finding the grace of God. What is grace? We can simply define it as this. It's God's supernatural sufficient supply for any and every need that I have. You believe God's completely trustworthy? You believe God can give you what you need? As opposed to striving for what I want by pride or self-will as opposed to trying to manipulate situations. How many of you don't raise your hand? How many of you like to be in control? You don't like situations or events that are not under your control. And you feel out of control very keenly. I won't ask for spouses to raise their hand. My spouse likes to be in control. But the grace of God, get the, the grace of God moves into every situation like that, and it has the supernatural sufficient supply for any and every need that we have. His grace is enough. It's enough. It's sufficient. It's super abundant, the word that Paul uses in Romans chapter number five. And so as we think about cultivating a heart for grace, I want you to notice four characteristics of Ruth's heart that show up, they're manifested, 
in her actions, her attitudes, and her words. Because the heart is the pressure release valve of the, or the mouth is the pressure release valve of the heart. The attitude is the aroma of the heart. Our words, our actions, and our attitudes reveal what is in our heart. First of all, Ruth had a heart of selfless service. A heart of selfless service. Look at verse 2 and 3, if you would. Verse number 2, And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, Remember, they've come back to Bethlehem. She said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn, after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. We've already talked about the hap of grace several weeks ago. Those coincidences, those divine coincidences, providential appointments that God brings into our life. But the point I want us to get here is that Ruth's willingness to go and involve herself in lowly service in order to meet the needs of Naomi. These were two destitute widows. I don't know if we can fully appreciate what it was for Ruth and Naomi as destitute widows, Ruth herself being a Moabitess, Naomi being a, can I say, a black sheep returning from going to Moab. It's only the goodness of God that the people of Bethlehem received them as warmly as they did. And so Ruth understands somebody's got to go to work. She understood the laws of gleaning to some degree. Notice if you would verse number 7 as well. When Boaz shows up and he sees Ruth in the field, the servant of Boaz gives a report and then he tells Boaz verse number seven and she said I pray you let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves so she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house and I love this about Ruth is that she had a heart of selfless service to help meet the needs of Naomi notice verse number 11 Boaz commends her, the middle of the verse. He said, answered and said unto her, It hath been fully showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband. The cultural implication there is this, is that once her husband died, it's almost as if her obligation to the family would have been, can I say this, released. But with a heart of selfless service and love for another Ruth stayed on. She attached her life to Naomi, even though remembering Naomi was a bitter woman when she did that. Boaz understood all that she had done for her mother-in-law. Mother-in-laws get a bad rap. I think I've said this before. There are some guys that are friends of mine who tell mother-in-law jokes, and I haven't invited them to preach. You might say, Pastor, that's just a little narrow-minded. i got to tell you, between Jenny's mom and Grace's mom, God has blessed me with two mothers-in-law, good ones. And I just have a hard time with mother-in-law jokes. You can talk about me behind my back later on if you want to, but anyway. I love this about Ruth. Ruth upheld the mother-in-law and took care of Naomi. A heart of selfless service. I heard a message preached years ago called Second Mile Christianity. Hey, listen. 
You may have a mother-in-law that you don't necessarily... Let me just say this to you. She did give you your wife, husbands. Okay. There's a, and we can switch it around and say she did give you your husbands. Second mile Christianity. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 5? If a man sue thee at the law for thy coat, give him thy cloak also. If one of those Roman soldiers in that day, by law they could compel a Jew to carry their pack for a mile. And Jesus said, if a man compel you to carry his pack for a mile, go with him. Twain, two. Okay. Second mile. And when we have a heart of selfless service, get this, it's part of cultivating a heart that is going to experience the grace of God. Secondly, verses 8 and 9, I noticed this. She had a heart of humble submission. A heart of humble submission. Boaz comes to her after he gets the report from his foreman at the fields. Then said Boaz, verse number 8, unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? You know what he's saying to her in modern vernacular? He's saying, listen to me. Listen, listen. Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. You stick close. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go after them. Have not I charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? You know, from an initial perspective, that seems pretty presumptuous, doesn't it? I do personally believe that uh, it may well have been love at first sight, and Boaz is thinking maritally. But Ruth had a choice to make. And I love this about her. She develops a heart and demonstrates a heart, cultivates a heart of humble submission. Let me say this about selfless service and humble submission and cultivating a heart of selfless service and humble submission. That is not always easy. In fact, very frequently is difficult. It's not always easy. It's not always expected when we're called upon to demonstrate selfless service. Nor is it always enjoyable. Sometimes the work, the labor can be hard, hot, and in Ruth's case, humiliating. Because the very involvement in the work of gleaning was the same as saying, I'm a Moabite, I'm a widow, and I am destitute and poor. And then this man, Boaz, says to her, just stay in my field. Stay fast by my maidens. I've, many times when I've talked about this passage, I've thought about how many times there are godly people that God places in our life, authorities, legitimate authorities over us, and they'll give us instruction or warning, and uh, sometimes a rebellious heart will say, who do they think they are? That's legalism. But I want you to understand tonight that a heart of humble submission is willing, get this, to listen to directives. It is willing to pay attention to warnings. And it's willing to avoid questionable associations. Remember, this was the day when the judges ruled. 
It was a time when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This was not a safe time for a woman to be in the fields in a setting like this. Boaz, a man that she would have only met this first time, but in the providence of God, he is bringing her and or him and Ruth together. She has to make a decision. I am going to humbly submit. I'm not going to think of myself more highly than I ought to think. I'm going to bring myself to the level of God's description of me because it's not necessarily the most um, pride-enhancing thing to say I'm a Moabite at this time. To say I'm a widow who's destitute. To say I'm in need that doesn't enhance pride. But Ruth demonstrates a heart of humble submission. My dad used to say this, there's always going to be somebody telling you what to do. Everybody found that out? There's always going to be somebody telling you what to do. And we have to determine to cultivate a heart of selfless service, a heart of humble submission. Thirdly, as I look at Ruth and her pattern for us and developing a heart for grace, number three, I notice that she cultivated a heart and modeled or demonstrate a heart of overwhelmed gratitude. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, when the flower of gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, he is well nigh hopeless. Gratitude. A heart of gratitude really is foundational to the first two points of the message tonight. A heart of gratitude will move us in the direction of selfless service, will move us in the direction of humble submission in the leadership, the authorities that God has placed in our lives. Notice, if you would, verse number 10. Let me back up to uh, verse number 9, the middle of the verse. I've charged the young men that they shall not touch thee, And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Uh, We'll not take the time to do this this evening. We looked at it in past weeks. You move over to verse number 14 all the way down to verse number 19 and 20. And you'll find that Boaz, as the landowner, breaks all protocols. Goes far beyond what was expected when it came to his care for Ruth. And his provision for Ruth. And Ruth, let me just say this. Ruth's response was exactly what it should have been. May I say this? When you and I get a fuller understanding of the grace of God, she gives to us a wonderful example of how we should respond as well. Now, her falling on her face, verse number 10, and bowing herself to the ground, may I say this, is very Jewish, it's very Mideastern. But notice what these actions teach us about her heart. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes? The very fact that she asked this question, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, demonstrates to us she did not have an entitlement mentality. The very fact that she asked, why have I found grace in thine eyes, is a testimony of the fact that she was not coming on any of her own merits. She was not coming with any kind of thought that she deserved this. And 
it demonstrates a heart of overwhelmed gratitude. Notice several of the things that she said when she asked, Why have I found the grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me? Uh, Naomi would notice the same thing over in verse number 19. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. I remember years ago reading in a commentary on this passage of Scripture and that simple statement of Boaz taking knowledge. And the idea is this, is that he thought of her in a way that he normally would not have been expected to think of her. The idea is this, because she was a Moabite, it would have been the accepted norm that he would not have had to have thought of her at the level that he did his own Israelite handmaidens. But instead, instead, he took knowledge of her in the sense that he, in his thinking, elevated her. He raised her up so that even though she was a Moabitess, he thought of her as if she were an Israelite woman. The application is amazing for you and for me when you think about the fact of how God regards us. Think about this morning, sinners and ungodly and enemies and without strength. And yet God, through the lens of grace and love, when he looks at you and me, he takes knowledge of us and he views us as sons. And our response should be a heart that is overwhelmed with gratitude. She thanks him for taking knowledge of her, seeing that she is a stranger, a foreigner, a Moabitess. Verse number 11. Look over, if you would, verse number 13 again. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. She is in her mind distinguishing herself from the Israelite handmaidens and yet is overwhelmed that he's not just treating her equally, he is treating her above how he is treating them. And what a picture it becomes for us. She fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground. I'm not going to take the time to do this, but these two statements, falling on her face and bowing herself to the ground, are used in one other chapter in the Scriptures. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 23 to 41 Ruth's grandson, David, is living out in the wild in exile. He provides protection for the flocks and the herds of a man named Nabal. David sends a contingency of his young soldiers, his young men, to ask for some food out of gratitude for the protection that they had provided. And you remember the story, Nabal being a curlish man. That's what is the idea of his name, a hateful man. Nobody could speak reasonably to him. But he was super wealthy. And his response was to reject David and his men out of hand. You remember what David said? He said, gird on every man his sword. And I'll not use the detailed words of the King James Version. But he said, we're going to make sure that no one's left of the males of this family before the day's out. Abigail, Nabal's wife, heard about it. 
And do you remember what her response was? She got a bunch of food together. She intercepted David. And the Bible tells us that her response, get this, she fell on her face. She acknowledged David's grace, especially when he would later on, after Nabal was dead, he would send to request that she be his wife. I can't help but think that maybe David thought, you know what, this Abigail reminds me a lot of Grandma Ruth. The parallels are interesting. And ladies, let me just say this for you tonight. Okay? Don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way advocating that you ladies fall on your face and bow down to the ground. Okay? That's why I said that's very Mideastern. But what I want you to notice is, is that these women in doing this, they were not doormats. Abigail's influence was so profound in David's life that he acknowledged it and acknowledged that her actions and her attitude had literally stopped him from doing something he then realized he would have regretted deeply. She saved him from getting a blight on his name, and she did it on her face and kneeling before him. Profound influence. My dad always said, the wife's the neck that turns the husband who's the head. Okay. And so a heart overwhelmed with gratitude. Gratitude is the acknowledgement of undeserved blessings bestowed. Fourthly, as we think about cultivating a heart for the grace of God, Ruth's model, her example for us, a heart of selfless service, a heart of humble submission, a heart of overwhelmed gratitude. I'm talking about an oh, folks. An oh, an awe. I'm convicted when I think about how easy it is for me to just get used to the goodness of God. To get used to, to read about it. I mean, God's own record of it, to read about it in the Bible, one verse after another, after another, to just be saturated with it. And yet how easily, yeah. But a heart that is cultivated for the grace of God will be a heart of overwhelmed gratitude. Number four, it'll be a heart of conspicuous trust. This is my last point. Notice verse number 12. Boaz says to her, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel. I love this statement, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Psalm 17, and I believe it's verse number eight. Keep me as the apple of thine eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Let me just say, there's no better place to be than under the wings of the Messiah. Under the wings of Jehovah God. And Joab commends her. He said, you've come to trust under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. The Lord Jehovah, the eternally self-existent one, who is the almighty God of his people Israel. The word trust, and there are several different facets and different words translated trust in the Old Testament. The word trust here means to flee to a place for refuge. 
She understood that destruction was waiting in Moab. And she fled Moab, and for refuge she came to Israel to trust under the wings of the Lord. Here's the thing. Her heart of trust was a heart of conspicuous trust. Boaz saw it. Before it's over with chapter number 3, he'll testify that all the people of the city of Bethlehem saw it too. The condition of our hearts is more obvious than we often realize. Have you ever noticed someone who had some kind of problem or some kind of issue and everybody else noticed it, you noticed it, and it was like they were the only ones that didn't notice it? A heart of conspicuous trust. The condition of our heart is more obvious. It is revealed through our actions, through our attitudes, and through our words. She cultivates a heart for grace by growing in conspicuous trust, both in her resting in Boaz's words and actions as the man that would become her God-appointed husband. But more importantly than that, she demonstrates her trust, a heart of trust, in her confidence in the Lord's name and his provision. So a heart of conspicuous trust. Let me bring this to a conclusion. So we go back and we review these four characteristics of Ruth's heart, a heart of selfless service. Here's a practical application for us. Determine that in your life, when it comes to serving the Lord and others, there's nothing that you're too good to do. Is that going to be easy all the time? But if Jesus wasn't too good to wash the disciples' feet, including one that would betray him and one that would deny him, you and I have no reason to be too good to do any act of service for another. So ensure in that heart of selfless service that there's nothing you're too good to do. Secondly, as we think about the importance of the heart of humble submission, I think it's important for us to acknowledge the goodwill of divinely appointed authorities in our lives. I want to I shock all of you kids, okay? All the kids, listen to me. Teenagers, you can be included in this well. I know that sometimes when your parents say there's something you can't do, you might be tempted to think that your mom and dad years ago said, <laughs> let's have more kids so we can make somebody's life miserable. I want you to know I don't think any parents in this room ever had that thought. Young people, listen. A heart of humble submission that is going to tap into the abundant and continuous flow of the grace of God is a heart that will acknowledge the goodwill, the good intentions of the authorities that God's placed in your life. Their best interests, or their, their thought is your best interest. Thirdly, as we think about cultivating a heart that is overwhelmed by gratitude, I think about some words of the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, he said, I am what I am. And he asked the church at Corinth, what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Answer, 
And so as we cultivate a heart of overwhelmed gratitude so that we can tap into the abundance of God's grace, let us remember that everything we have is from God's hand. It is all undeserved, and may we never get over it. And then fourthly, as we think about cultivating a heart of conspicuous trust so that we can experience the grace of God in our lives, let us learn to trust the Lord implicitly. Uh, The idea of the word implicitly is without qualification or question. Trust the Lord without question. And let us learn to trust the Lord explicitly. That is, in a clear and a detailed manner. That is, there's no room for confusion or doubt when other people observe my actions. It will be obvious that person trusts the Lord. That person is living with their confidence in the Lord. And so cultivating a heart of grace, a heart of selfless service, a heart of humble submission, a heart of overwhelmed gratitude, a heart of conspicuous trust. I close with an interesting illustration that will hopefully help the truths stick in our minds tonight. In November of 2008, a 65-year-old pilot in his Cessna plane, British pilot by the name of Doug O'Neill, was flying between Scotland and England. 40 minutes into his flight, he had a stroke and went blind. He was at 5,500 feet. He immediately sent out a distress signal. Coincidentally, a squadron of RAF training pilots were nearby when they heard the call for distress. The wing commander of those RAF pilots sent the other guys home and he peeled off and he found Doug O'Neill in his Cessna flying blind. He moved up wing to wing with Doug O'Neill. The pilot's name with the RAF was Paul Girard. They established radio connection. And through detailed instruction, Paul Girard guided Doug O'Neill to safely land his airplane blind. They said the most difficult part was when they made the approach on the runway. Those of you who've flown before who are pilots, you understand that there comes a point where even if you've been flying uh, with instruments, you have to let your sight take over when you make your final approach. And that was the hardest part as Paul Gerard with the RAF guided a little bit to the right, a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left, a little bit back and forth, guiding him, okay, lower, lower. Uh, Doug O'Neill, as the story goes, bounced three times on the runway before he finally got her planted down. But he had to trust the voice of Paul Gerard. May I tell you tonight, if we're going to have a heart for grace, we have to trust implicitly the voice of our kinsman redeemer. Father, thank you for your word this evening. I pray that you would stir within each of us a renewed desire to cultivate our hearts to have a a more abundant experience of and flow of the grace of God in our lives. Your supernatural and sufficient supply for any and every need. 
May we have a heart of selfless service and humble submission and overwhelmed gratitude and a heart of conspicuous trust. May we trust you and your word implicitly and explicitly so that we can be guided safely in your will and more and more every day experience the outflow of your grace in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.